Hey friends, welcome back to The Catwalk. My name is Clark Cowden. I'm your host for this podcast, and I want to thank you for joining with me again today for this week's message. Today we are continuing our series on people of faith, and we're looking at the life of a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a Christian who lived in England in the late uh, 1700s, early 1800s, and who played a major role in Parliament in outlawing slavery in England. He had a significant impact on all of English society and their government and their laws, and his work there impacted the slavery issue in the United States and around the world. He helped bring about a major change that was sorely needed. I invite you to sit back and relax and reflect on this message on what we can learn for our lives today from the life of William Wilberforce. When we think about some of the great people of faith who have gone before us, Any list of some of the most influential Christians of all time has to include a man by the name of William Wilberforce. As we reflect on who he was, the four chapters of his life are the early years, the great change, slavery and culture, and what we learned from his life. First of all, the early years. William Wilberforce was born in 1759, the son of a very wealthy family of merchants in Hull, a large seaport city on the northwest coast of England. His father died when he was only nine years old, and his mother became so ill people thought she might die too. So William was sent away to live with a wealthy aunt and uncle in Wimbledon. At this time, most socially respectable people in England had moved away from any robust expression of the Christian faith, instead adopting Enlightenment rationalism or deism. This was preached in most churches of that time, which was not about a personal God or a vibrant Jesus, but was more about an impersonal force. But the aunt and uncle that William had gone to live with were serious Christians who were involved in the evangelical revivals of John and Charles Wesley, who started the Methodist movement. The Methodist revival took place mostly in the lower class and the working class and was disdained by the wealthy upper class. When William was 12, his mother and grandfather were horrified that he was being raised as a serious Methodist Christian. So they removed him from his aunt and uncle's home, and he returned to live with his mother. They tried to remove the Methodist spark in him, even refusing to allow him to attend worship services in the Church of England, lest the reading of the Bible have any ill effects on him. By the time he was 16, he had backslid from his faith, 
And when he entered college at Cambridge, he was pretty much your typical wealthy student who no longer had any serious interest in God. It was there that he became best friends with William Pitt, who would eventually join William Wilberforce as two of the most famous politicians in England. They were in college in the late 1770s, which was when the American Revolution was taking place. William Pitt and William Wilberforce were mesmerized by the debates taking place in Parliament about what to do with the American colonies. Two weeks after his 20th birthday, Wilberforce was elected to Parliament, and William Pitt was elected just a few months later. These two young Cambridge graduates rose quickly through the political ranks as rising stars, quickly becoming the most powerful members of Parliament of their day. At the age of 24, Wilberforce traveled to Paris, where he met with King Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, the Marquis de Lafayette, and Benjamin Franklin. At the young age of 24, Wilberforce was elected to the most significant position in Parliament, and William Pitt was elected Prime Minister of England. In just their early 20s, they had already arrived at the pinnacle of power. The second stage of Wilberforce's life has been described as the Great Change. It happened in 1784 when Wilberforce decided to take a long vacation to the French and Italian Riviera. He traveled 1,200 miles in a horse-drawn coach with an old childhood friend named Isaac Milner, who was 10 years older than he was. Milner was now the Lucasian professor at Cambridge, a post once held by Isaac Newton, and more recently by Stephen Hawking. He was probably one of the smartest people on the planet. Something happened on that long coach ride across Europe that would change Wilberforce's life forever. It turns out that his brilliant friend was also a closet Methodist. If Wilberforce had known this before the trip began, he probably would never have invited his old friend to join him. But they ended up spending hours discussing God, Christ, in the Bible. To his distress, Wilberforce found himself starting to believe that the God of the Bible really did exist, that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah, and that the scriptures were not just silly old myths, but truth itself. Years later, Wilberforce described this time as the great change, as his conversion experience where he became a real believer. By the time he returned to England, Wilberforce knew he could not just re-enter his former life as a Christian. <clears throat> he would be the laughingstock at parties and the five gentlemen's clubs he belonged to. 
He fell into a state of depression and wondered if he should leave politics to enter a monastery or become a priest. But one day he had a serious conversation with his old friend, John Newton, the former slave trader who had written the hymn, Amazing Grace. Newton was an unapologetic evangelical who had watched his friend walk away from his faith as a teenager and quickly rise to become one of the most powerful and important politicians of his day. Newton knew how dirty politics was, but he encouraged Wilberforce not to leave his work in the government. He believed God had prepared him for this moment in time. His words were persuasive, and Wilberforce made the decision to take his faith into the ugly world of politics and serve God there with his gifts. The third stage of his life centered around the issues of slavery and culture. Wilberforce began to pray and ask God to lead him, trying to figure out what to do. It took him about two years of soul-searching, but he eventually wrote his decision in his diary. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. As a Christian, he had now become horrified with the slave trade and that England was benefiting from it economically. It had never bothered him before, but now he saw how evil and anti-Christian it really was. The Reformation of Manners referred to the terrible evils that existed in English culture of that time. He was bothered by child labor where poor children as young as five and six years old were employed to work 10 and 12 hour days in horrible working conditions. Alcoholism was a terrible problem. The sexual trafficking of women was a staggering problem as about 25% of single women in London were prostitutes. Their average age was just 16. There were public displays of extreme animal cruelty, public hangings, people being executed for the smallest offenses, and unhealthy prison conditions. Everywhere he looked, Wilberforce saw a world untouched by the good news of Jesus Christ. People used and abused each other in a perpetual downward spiral of misery and decay. But he knew that God had called him to do something about it. Christ had now changed the way he looked at everything. He now saw that every human being was made in the image of God and was worthy of respect and kindness. He knew that God was real and loved everyone. But he felt like almost no one else saw the world the way he did. What could he do about it? Just days before he died, John Wesley wrote a letter to Wilberforce, 
imploring him to do something about the terrible slave trade. Wesley pointed out that this was not just a political battle or a cultural battle, but a spiritual battle. To fight against slavery would be like fighting a demonic host. God had the power to fight it, but Wilberforce did not. Wesley wanted him to realize the spiritual reality that lay behind the political reality and that he could not succeed without God. At its core, many battles worth fighting are spiritual battles. If we want to succeed, we have to understand the words of Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, which says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The battles we fight in this world are not just against the physical forces we can see. They are against the spiritual forces we cannot see. When Paul describes the spiritual armor that God gives us to wear, almost all of the components are defensive in nature. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. These are all elements to protect us when we get attacked. The only offensive components are our feet that run to the gospel of peace and the sword of the Lord, which is the word of God. We advance with the gospel, with the word of God, and with peace knowing that we will not succeed without God's help. William Wilberforce understood this in the daily battles he fought in the Parliament. He prayed and read the scriptures every day. He got together with other Christians, and they prayed together. He memorized scripture. He was not a lone ranger, but he relied on a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. William Wilberforce's fight to end the slave trade in England took the rest of his life. He knew that this was just as much of a cultural fight as it was a political fight. In other words, to be successful, he would somehow have to change the hearts and minds of the people. 
At that time, wealthy people believed that they were wealthy because God was on their side. Conversely, they believed that poor people were poor because God was not on their side. So they believed that to help the poor was going against God's will. This is not the Christian view of the poor. This is more of the Hindu view of karma. In India, the upper class would never dream of helping the untouchable lower class because they think their misery is due to their bad karma. They think they deserve their bad misfortune. Wealth is the result of your good karma. So there is no desire to help the poor. Wilberforce's efforts to change this mindset in England took decades. It basically took the rest of his life and can be seen as one of the most significant accomplishments in history. Finally, in 1807, Parliament voted to outlaw the slave trade in England. It had taken 20 long years to pass the Slave Trade Act. They didn't outlaw slavery itself, but they did outlaw the slave trade. Wilberforce was now 48 years old. He had contended with life-threatening illnesses for years and would continue to do so. His life had been threatened many times by the opponents of abolition, but he was not deterred. But the battle was not over. He set out to persuade France, Spain, and Russia to abolish the slave trade as well, while continuing to work in England to abolish slavery completely. He knew that unless these nations and the United States abolished slavery, his work would be for naught. Even though England had passed the law, the long-entrenched practices continued. They had to keep fighting to make sure the law was enforced and that people complied. Many didn't want to give up what was making them a lot of money. In 1833, just three days before his death at the age of 73, <clears throat> Wilberforce was informed that Parliament had finally passed the law outlawing slavery completely. <clears throat> this law was wider in scope and would be more effective in rooting out this terrible injustice. He had fought the fight he had finished the race, he had kept the faith. Fourth and finally, what do we learn from the life of William Wilberforce? First of all, we learn that Wilberforce never worked alone. Politics is a business where you have to work with people. You have to persuade people who disagree with you and you need a strong community supporting you so you don't give up and give in to discouragement. His life is a demonstration to us that we will not survive without our faith intact 
without the church. You need other Christian believers in your life to lean on. You need to be encouraging others to hang in there. And you need others who will encourage you to hang in there. We were created to live in relationship with each other. As nice as it is to watch a worship service on our computers, TVs, and screens, if you are not regularly gathering in person with other Christian believers, your faith will not be as strong as it needs to be. We need the regular in-person gathering of Christians if we want to have a deep, mature faith. This is what sustained Wilberforce and kept him going during decades of opposition and disagreement. Secondly, we learn that Wilberforce worked with people he disagreed with. He loved his enemies. He didn't grandstand against those who didn't think slavery was wrong. He didn't try to humiliate them or embarrass them. He knew that we are all sinners saved by grace. He loved the sinner while hating the sin. He didn't demonize his opponents, but he valiantly fought against them. Thirdly, he lived out the words of Ephesians 6. Every day he put on the armor of God and went to battle in his own culture. He put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and carried the sword of the Lord. He prayed and read the Bible every day. He knew he needed that spiritual strength. He knew he could not succeed on his own. He knew that he needed God's power every day to survive and succeed. Fourthly and finally, we learn from Wilberforce to not give up. He was patient and persistent. He kept going and going even after defeat, after defeat, after defeat. It took a very long time to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. But because he never quit, he eventually succeeded. The same is true for us today. We need to lovingly, patiently, and valiantly keep working for what is right, with the right spirit, and the right attitude. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God bless. Stay safe. See you soon.